Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of SohoBites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi, and to the millions of people out there who have kindly informed me about the new film that's coming out this month about Soho, in fact the word Soho is even in the title, I'm now fully aware of it. Thank you. It's actually a little bit too recent to feature on the podcast just yet, specialising as we do in films that have been out for some time. I will, though, get somebody on to talk about Last Night in Soho in about 27 years' time. So, good. I'm looking forward to that. I have yet to see Last Night in Soho, and I'm so looking forward to it. But all the indications are that it will be a lot more successful than the Soho film we're talking about in the second half of this month's episode. The notorious flop that bankrupted Goldcrest Studios absolute beginners from 1986. The film was a loss-making disaster at the box office, as well as being a critical failure, as everybody knows. But was this reception for the critics and the public deserved? My guest for the film chat section of the show, a bit later on, is Del Pike, who in 2016 wrote an article entitled Absolute Beginners at 30, Was It Really So Bad? Ooh, controversial. He'll be making the case for Absolute Beginners in the second half of the show, and before that... Aidan McManus makes a return visit to Soho Bites to talk about the early Soho-centric career of one of the stars of Absolute Beginners, Patsy Kensit. Oh, I'm just joking. He will, of course, be talking about David Bowie, who, before he was famous, was a well-known face in Soho in the 1960s, trying out different bands and different images before finally hitting upon the winning formula that transformed him into a worldwide megastar. All of that after this. Oh, I do like a bit of bassoon. Or is it an oboe? Anyway, bassoon or oboe, this is definitely David Bowie or Bowie with his 1967 single, The Laughing Gnome, in which young David is followed down the street by a helium-voiced gnome with a penchant for puns. I was walking down the high street When I heard footsteps behind me It was not a huge success. In fact, it failed to chart when it was first released in 1967. As we know, though, this was not David Bowie's last attempt to break the charts. 
and neither was it his first, as he'd been around on the Soho music scene in different guises for several years by this point. Performing under his real name, David or Davy Jones, he'd been in several bands, bands such as The Manish Boys and The Lower Third, and had performed and recorded in a variety of music styles, searching for that elusive something. When Bowie finally made it big, really big, with his Ziggy Stardust album and Persona, the famous album cover was shot just outside Soho, on the other side of Regent Street, perhaps signifying that his struggling Soho days were behind him. One man who knows all about Bowie's early years is Aidan McManus. Aidan is a London polymath who, as well as presenting a show on Portobello Radio, runs several walking tours, one of which is a David Bowie-themed tour of Soho. We met up in person, which is still a novelty, outside the ship pub on Wardour Street because, as I found out, it's a significant location in the early life of David Bowie. Because, as you know, Soho Bites is the podcast that likes to ask the big questions. I started with the biggest question of them all. We're now recording. So, Bowie Bowie? Bowie. Yeah. I used to call him Bowie when I was a kid, but I got browbeaten into calling him Bowie. Uh, exactly the same thing, yeah. So, I think if it's a bow and arrow, it's bow. So. And I used to call him Bowie to annoy all the serious Bowie heads. And they go, it's not Bowie, it's Bowie. You know, yeah. all that. You're all right, mate. I'm sorry, yeah, all right, Bowie. Yeah, no, no, Bowie, Bowie. And they really used to get to him. Like it was, you were mispronouncing their own name. Do you know what I mean? Well, we're going to call him Bowie for the purposes of the yeah. interview. Yeah. So, uh, welcome back on Soho Bites, Aidan. It's nice yes, to see yes, you yes. again. We're outside the ship pub on Wardour the Street. Ship, Bowie's old pub. Bowie's old pub. Bowie's old pub. So you started me off yeah, now. Sorry. See? <laughs> right, so why are we here? We can't go inside because it's too noisy. So why are we here? Of well, all this places? was the, the musician's pub in Soho. So you've got Trident Studios at the back where Bowie did um, Space Oddity, Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust. So, you know, that early era, you know, just where he was sort of, everyone thought he was a one-hit wonder after Space Oddity, and then he had, well, even Hunky Dory, when it came out, didn't set the world on fire. If you look at Hunky Dory, he's got long hair on the cover, and on the back he's got long hair and big flares on, he looks he looks like a, an old hippie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Is that and an old picture? That, no, that no, no, that's what he looked like when it was recorded. And then all of a sudden, the Ziggy thing, it, 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 I think he started Ziggy Stardust within, within months, if not sooner, they just kept recording, because he had so much stuff, so they chucked that out album out and then started straight away on Ziggy and then he met that Freddie Beretta who designed all those mad Ziggy outfits and, and that, that's when it all changed and when Ziggy come out and then of course uh, Starman where he put his arm around Mick, Mick Ronson, Ronson yeah. and scandalised the nation yeah. two men with arms around each other <laughs> my god so we think of David Bowie yeah and obviously he's a London guy born in Brixton uh, but you do think of Berlin you think of New York you run a Bowie themed Soho tour so yeah. how much history is there of Bowie in Soho at least 10 years before he was famous before he was famous Going that's back the thing to the isn't 50s, it he, he had a half brother that was a lot older than him who ended up in the mental hospital this guy Terry he was a beatnik and he was into jazz he was in all the beat poets and stuff. And so the beatniks all used the coffee bar, heaven and hell and all these places. And um, he brought him here when he was a kid. 
just wandering around Soho and, you know, introduced him to Soho. Rock and roll turned up and, you know, he was a teenager in the 50s and so he went to the Two Eyes. So Bowie went to the Two Eyes? That, yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that connection. I'm pretty sure he did. Maybe not in 1955. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. he was eight or whatever. Yeah. But the Two Eyes carried on into the early 60s. Yeah, right. And it was sort of a, a pilgrimage. So, you know what I mean? It was that sort of scene. And that's where he got going. And then sort of 63, 64... He starts hanging around here sort of full time. He got a job, the only proper job I think he ever had was in an advertising agency around here. And his boss used to send him Dobells to pick up records. And his boss was a bit of a, a hep music collector. So he used to spend an hour in there and he'd, he'd listen to all this stuff because his boss was sending him in there. And he was in these little R&B bands like the Manish Boys and... Uh, yeah, tell me about these little bands. I'm a bit confused about the Manish Boys and the Lower Third. The Lower Third, yeah. Lower Third are from Margate. They were sitting in the Giaconda and um, he walked by and he had really long blonde hair and they thought he was Keith Ralph. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so then they had, a, they had an audition in La Discotheque, which is now a Chinese restaurant further down Wardour Street from where we are. But he, he was pretty good. He looked the part. And he, he could sing, they were doing Yardbirds covers. And so they said, yeah, you're all right, you'll, you'll do. And so that was probably his first sort of proper band. He was in a band called the King Bees with um, George Underwood, Davy Jones and the, the, the King Bees or something. They used to play in the Roundhouse, which is on the corner of Brewer Street. I can't remember what it's called this week. It still has Roundhouse above the door. You see the one with the two lights? Yeah. Yeah, that, that used to be the Roundhouse. That first floor room in there was um, Alexis Corner's R&B club where Muddy Waters and everyone played up there man that's amazing Muddy Waters probably had a drink in here I know he had a drink in the Coach and Horses in Poland Street so they've all been in all of these places so um, yeah the King Davy Jones and the King Bees with George Underwood from school he's the one that punched him in the eye and made his eyes go two different colours there's so many myths around him I thought the punch in the eye thing was what made one of his pupils permanently dilated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the colour thing, I thought, was from birth. Nah, nah, and that's from that punching in the eye. Oh, apparently. really? Yeah, yeah. Over over a girl back when they was at school. But they made up and he designed a few album covers, I think, for Bowie as well later on. Highlighting his different coloured eyes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, that was always part of his look as well, having two different colour eyes, that sort of alien look. Yeah, yeah. And when he was doing Ziggy, it was perfect, you know, having that... Trident Studios is the back of where we are now. Yeah. Legendary studios. And it was partly, he wasn't the first artist to work there, was he? No, no. People like the Stones had been there. And the, the Beatles. Beatles I think the, the Beatles put it on the map a bit because they did quite a lot of the White Album there. Because it had eight tracks and Abbey Road only had four. Yeah, what I heard was, well, Abbey Road used to like shut up, shop at like 6pm. Yeah, and I and think they, all, they were probably still wearing lab coats yeah, up there yeah, in the 60s. Yeah, what's all that stuff, you know yeah. I mean? yeah. So when Bowie went there, was it a bit of kudos to, to record there? No, I don't know, man. He, he met Tony Visconti and he was in a band with him called The Hype. And he was in another band just when he met him called Feathers with um, John Hutchinson. And um, that Hermione, the first woman who broke his heart, the dancer. I don't know about it. They were together in uh, like 67, 68, and she went off to make a musical called, called Song of Norway and left him here and broke his heart. Oh, poor uh, Davy. But they were in some sort of acoustic, hippie, nonsense band. Another phase that he went through, he went from Anthony Newley. He, I think he was quite happy he would have gone into musical theatre. I think he would have done anything. Yeah, the Anthony Newley thing, that's the laughing gnome, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah, Anthony yeah. Newley inspired. Yeah, yeah, but that whole album, his voice is 
completely Anthony Newly inspired. It came out on the same day as Sergeant Pepper, so you're getting this sort of psychedelic stuff. Plus, you're getting this Victoriana, and he was writing songs that, that some of them could have been music hall songs. Yeah. Yeah, you know I mean, like the, the rubber band about some band during the First World War playing in a bandstand in the park. It's all a bit strange, but he did it all himself. And him and this uh, guy called Dick Fearnley, who just worked out the orchestrations themselves and they were giving it to these, you know, seasoned session woodwind players and say, play this, and they're all sitting there smoking, going, you sure? You want me to play this? And all this sort of stuff. So he's pretty ballsy, man. He didn't yeah. know what he was doing. And what age is he at this stage? He's like 21. A, yeah, I mean, it's, it's impressive. The thing is, what characterises his solo years, whenever it went wrong, he didn't get dispirited. He just did something else. So all this chopping and changing and trying new things, that's the solo years, basically. It's kind of, he could bring an album out of a retro album of call it the Soho years well yeah but you've got sort of Boho Bo-Soho Bo-Soho years So-Bo Bo-Bo So-Bo years Soey Bowie the Bo-So and we'll work on that yeah 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 we can can re-record that bit that stuff from that period is quite run of the mill and not you can't particularly distinguish it from other stuff around at the time yeah. it's only retrospectively you go as soon as you hear his voice yeah. you know it's him but yeah. it's only because so, it, so it gives it a certain, yeah. a certain yeah, way yeah, yeah. so is it true to say that his encounter with Lindsay Kemp is what kind of turned him into more of a performance artist and a bit more of, a, of an original well I think you know th- this pub has got something to do because like he, apparently when the first album bombed he comes in here and he says uh, he said, that's it I'm finished with the music biz I'm going to become a Buddhist monk in, in Scotland and everyone laughed at him but then um, that when I lived my dream off that first album Lindsay Kemp heard this album and liked it to be honest with you, he probably liked the photo on the front. This, this is the, good this is the 1967, boy. when yeah. he changed his name, he'd gone from Jones to Bowie Yeah, because stage. of the monkeys. And uh, yeah, I think Lindsay Kemp saw the picture and went, ooh, he's nice. And then listened to it and liked it. I liked that album as well. And um, he started using When I Live My Dream in this show he was doing. So he was one of these... Let me talk to you through the medium of dance yeah. and all that. What else? So he was established as, a, as yeah. an artiste. As, as a Ponzi dancer, yeah. right? Which that's what I'd call him. You yeah. know what I mean? I'd yeah. call him worse than that. I've yeah. been worked with him, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to tell me that story. So um, Lindsay Kemp found out who his manager was and invited him to a performance of this play he was doing, which I can't remember the name of. So Bowie turns up with Hermione and uh, he's very flattered. And Lindsay comes up. Oh, what a great song, David, oh, and all this. And Lindsay Kemp lived in Bateman Street. He uh, invited him back. She said, oh, come back to my place. And apparently Kemp's flat was the Soho equivalent of Warhol's factory. Okay. Right, so there's all these trannies, hookers, pickpockets, you know what I mean? Criminals, junkies. You know, he's a kid. He's like 20, 21. And you'd think he'd be a bit phased by all this sort of hardcore solo action, but he wasn't at all. He was just soaking it all in. Yeah, but so apparently him and Kemp were lovers. He, he was very coy, I think, on the, whether that happened or not. But Lindsay Kemp was adamant that they were having a torrid love affair. And then they wrote a show together, um, Piero and Turquoise. Oh, yeah. They went on tour with it. And uh, Lindsay caught Bowie with the wardrobe mistress in flagrante. And so they fell out and then... I think um, he, he went back to Hermione and then went off to do Song of Norway. The 
Space Oddity was after that, wasn't it? It started to go a little bit kind of avant-garde. Yeah, but I know you know who I think is is responsible for that, who never gets much of a shout, typically because she was a woman, is Angie Bowie. Or Bowie. Bowie, <laughs> Bowie. Oh. No, but she turns up, and she was the one pushing him to, you know, go for it. I mean, she was pretty wild. So when did she come on the scene? Oh, 69, 68, okay, 69. No, oh, no, okay. 69, 70. Okay. And she turns up, and she starts really pushing him. She was the one that got him to wear the, the man dresses, and, and they moved into that Haddon Hall place down in Bromley. But they were still working inside. They were still recording in Trident all the time. The spiders, apparently they had this revolving door full of people that they were both sleeping with. And I mean, it's pretty sort of Christopher Isherwood decadence. And this is where he started writing all this stuff that made him famous. Thing is with Bowie as well, he appealed to people right across the board. I mean, football hooligans, gay geezers, teeny bopper girls, older women, you know what I mean? The whole right across the board. Which is a bit Soho. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, because he's, he's been here for 10 years. This is like a, his Petri dish. I think he played the Marquis, six different bands. And getting gigs in the Marquis was quite a big thing. It meant you were getting somewhere. I mean, it wasn't, it was better than the two eyes. Yeah, so so basically the Marquis, because it's still a small venue, wasn't it? So, but you're on the way up. You're yeah, being yeah, noticed yeah. kind of thing. That yeah, was yeah, the status and, and, of and it. And it had a name. Yeah. And, you know, bands like the, the Yardbirds were playing in there and, you know, the Who. And, you know, a bit later on, he probably played in there before the Who. I don't know, about the same time anyway. So d he was well known in Soho, but he just couldn't get a, couldn't buy a hit. Just wasn't happening, but never got discouraged. So if people wanted to receive a personal tour of uh, Soho by yes. Adam McManus. yes. A Bowie Bowie themed tour. A Bowie tour. themed tour. Well, it is a Bowie what do do? Soho, Where do they go? it's called. Flipsidelondontours.com. Flipsidelondontours.com. Yeah, okay. yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, I can do private ones as well, but it's, it's called Bowie Soho. And basically, we started, you started Denmark Street, which is where he went as a kid. He starts there, and his sort of last thing that he does in Soho, really, is uh, the rap party for the Ziggy Tour was in the Cafe Royal, which is on the west side of Soho. So he, he works, works his, his way across. took him 10 years to work <laughs> his way across. <laughs> You're doing absolute beginners. That is a bit strange, because, you know, he was around here about that time that it's set in, which is sort of late 50s. Yeah, yeah. So it's, right, it's 1958, isn't it, absolute yeah. beginners? So sort of 12, 13... So he would have been up here with his brother. That film is awful. I mean, he's not a great actor. No, he's not, no. But, you know, God bless him. He's responsible for some of the greatest cultural moments of my life, and I'll always love him. God bless him indeed. And God bless you, Aidan McManus, for coming on Soho Bites again. As Aidan mentioned there, the place to find him online is flipsidelondontours.com, where you can book for his Bowie tour, his Gangland Soho tour, and several others. He also has a regular show on Portobello Radio, which I would highly recommend. All of these details can be found, of course, in the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com.
Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. The last thing I'd ever want to do on this podcast is to talk about a film in entirely negative terms, but 1986's Absolute Beginners is famous above all for being a huge box office and critical failure. Based on Colin McInnes's 1959 novel of the same name, it was the big-budget baby of director Julian Temple, who'd long had the ambition to bring the book to the screen. He'd previously cut his teeth on music videos and rockumentaries, if you will, and he brought a flashy, very 1980s sensibility and aesthetic to this very 1950s novel. I remember that hot, wonderful summer when the teenage miracle reached full bloom and everyone in England stopped what they were doing to stare at what had happened. The solo nights were cool in the heat, with light and music in the streets, and we couldn't believe that this was really coming to us at last. Nobody knew exactly why, but after so many dreary years of bombs and blitz and slow rebuilding, no sugar, no jam, nothing sweet anywhere. With the whole English world dressed in grey, it seemed forever. Suddenly, life broke out in warm colours again, so young and beautiful that a lot of people couldn't stand to look at it. For the first time ever, kids were teenagers. We had loot, however, come by, and loot's for spending. But where there's loot, trouble follows. In the original story, the unnamed narrator is a 19-year-old jazz-loving photographer who lives in a rundown area of West London that he calls Napoli. You can take this to be Notting Hill, and spends his nights in Soho. In both these areas, he's at the centre of a broiling melting pot where all behaviours, races, genders and sexualities are embraced. Just don't be a taxpayer. That's youth speak for adults. Right, that's for two right? This groovy scene is populated by a cast of characters who, like the narrator himself, are often nameless but have elaborate extended nicknames such as The Fabulous Hoplite, Call Me Cobber and The Ex-Deb of Last Year. The narrator moves from scene to scene conversing with different members of the cast in a heightened, stylized slang and the effect of all this is that McInnes has created a theatrical, almost surreal world. It's this slightly fantastical edge to the book that I think Julian Temple has attempted to capture in his film. The opening set piece of Absolute Beginners is an exhilarating balletic tour around the huge, impressive Soho set. We see familiar locations such as Bar Italia and The Two Eyes, but there's no pretense that these are real Soho streets. It's clearly a show, and it appears to be done in one long Steadicam shot. Our nameless protagonist has been given the name Colin in a nod to the book's author and is played by the absolute beginner Eddie O'Connell appearing in his first film. 
His love interest, Crep Suzette, is played by 16-year-old Patsy Kensett and is portrayed as much more innocent and chaste than the corresponding character in the book. Despite the film mostly being sold on the involvement of David Bowie, who plays the relatively small part of advertising executive Vendice Partners, the responsibility for carrying the film falls mainly on the young shoulders of the two leads, and unfortunately, they're not up to the job. O'Connell struggles with some of the trickier dialogue, and his outbursts of youthful anger never really convince. Kenzie is drippy and lacking charisma, which makes it difficult to believe Colin's powerful obsession with her. They do both look good though, and look good together, which is symptomatic of the film's major problem in terms of its relationship to the book. It shies away from the more profound elements of the book, such as the touching relationship between the narrator and his father, and concentrates instead on surface glitz and glamour. We're in classic style over substance territory here, and it's all very 1980s. True, sometimes a knife came out, but that was always between friends. You behave yourself, you're all right here. It's not in Soho where some sex maniac leaps in the back and violates you. It's strictly for the respectable neighbourhoods. The casting is another example of this. Contemporary eye-catching pop culture icons are chucked in there with no real regard as to whether or not they can act or if they're right for the part, and often they can't and they're not. I really don't want to diss the film too much as I think that's been done adequately by many others over the last 35 years and there are genuinely impressive moments in Absolute Beginners. The musical numbers and the large set pieces with hordes of extras who'd apparently been drafted in from the WAG club provide short bursts of enjoyment and there were clearly creatives and technical people involved who knew what they were doing. But as a whole, Absolute Beginners amounts to much less than the sum of its parts. It was always going to be difficult to adapt a tricky book like Absolute Beginners for the screen and fans of the book are still waiting for a decent adaptation, which is the point made by my guest, Del Pike, in his 2016 article which asks, was Absolute Beginners really so bad? Del is a freelance writer specialising in music, film, media and the arts and has written for various publications and websites, including Get Into This, which is where I stumbled upon the Absolute Beginners article, Coney's Loft and Bido Lito magazine. He's also the course leader for moving image production at the Hugh Baird University in Liverpool. I should warn you that Dell is a scouser and I'm a Mancunian, but we managed to keep it civil when we spoke online about Absolute Beginners, a film for which he has a lingering soft spot. Dell, help me out. I've been watching Absolute Beginners again. I watched it when it first came out and I've watched it twice recently in preparation for this conversation. And largely, I am in agreement with the critics who didn't like it much. I feel like there is something in there that's worthwhile. But then I saw your article, which is entitled, Was It Really That Bad? So you must be a massive fan of this film. Although, let me just read a quote to you before I release you with all your defences. This is a quote from the 1990 memoir of Jake Eberts, who ran Goldcrest Films. Goldcrest Films is the company that basically crashed because of absolute beginners. He said that the only good thing about the film was Barry's title track, Absolute Beginners, and he Mm -hmm. said, quote, there was nothing in the picture to which you could attach hope. (laughs) The music, (laughs) the performances, the characters and the dance numbers added up to one of the least attractive films of the decade. So what what say you? That's damning, isn't it? (laughs) It is quite damning. (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) I suppose he has a lot more at stake than me. I paid um, possibly about £5 for a cinema ticket. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I guess if you're attached to it, 
and it bombs and it ruins your your life for a while you're going to be yeah you're going to be negative aren't you <laughs> but, um, but in defense yeah in defense of the film it's a, it's a tough one i think and, I, and it's one of those i recently introduced it to my daughter when she, she watched it when she was about 16 and she loved it she really liked patsy kenzer's character and she likes the music and such but i think to truly appreciate it you had to be there at the time and know what was going on in britain at the time and kind of have some understanding of why it was made i think so at that time when it came out i was 19 when i saw it and I think I was just in the middle of all that. It was Thatcher's Britain, wasn't it? It was indie music versus the very sort of colourful Duran Duran wham kind of music. There was a lot of opposites and a lot of conflict. And I guess it was just a breath of fresh air in some ways for me. I, th- I think uh, it was something different, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think if I get started on slagging it off, I could go on for quite some time. Yeah. But for me, there are positives in the film, such mm-hmm. as... Production value-wise, it's very impressive. Fantastic mm. sets. Yeah. The opening sequence with the, the steady cam roving through Soho is very impressive. Some of the acting is quite good. Stephen Burkhoff. Yes. There's a good performance. Irene Handel. He is good. Mm. Uh, they're very small parts, but uh, both of them are very good. <laughs> yeah, she's very good, yeah. I struggle after that, though, to... I'm, I'm trying to be charitable. It feels shambolic and like the initial vision was not clear enough other than music videos which is what julian temple yes that's his background isn't it that was his stock in trade wasn't it absolutely i mean he obviously had a lot of respect for bowie and was a fan and a friend i guess so his we were talking before about about uh, jazz and for blue jean which was the extended music video we did for blue jean a couple of years prior to Absolute Beginners. And the colour schemes in that are very similar. You know, the uh, the neon blues and the pinks and the, the kind of garishness is all there, you know. And I almost feel like that was a, a test run for Absolute Beginners, you know, making them a very sort of 80s icon, really, I, I guess. The message is lost, though, isn't it? It's a very 80s film, isn't it? It's a very 80s film. About the 60s, well, about the 50s, I should say, 1958, it says, isn't it? So it's, how is that ever going to work? That's the thing, isn't it? You know, how, how are you going to make a, a very 80s film about the late 50s? Yeah, I almost feel like it would have benefited more from being almost like a stage show, a series of musical numbers based on yeah. the book. It feels like that's what it almost is. Yes. But they've linked it together with these quite bad performances should we talk about the acting yeah go on it is not it's not great is it it's not great is it it's not great at all and, and I, I know Bowie's before obviously he's, he was the major pull of the film wasn't he Bowie was the, the major pull of the film so you're kind of expecting him to impress and he doesn't you know of course he does music wise the, the title uh the, you know the theme the song absolute beginners is, is a belter and you know and so is the the big musical number in the middle that's motivation but his acting's quite shocking but it but is it intentional this is the thing is it is he intentionally bad yeah there is a moment when him and colin are looking at the white city development yeah and he drops out his american accent he does this thing he where does. he says um i can't really says now something like um no it's not son yeah, goes it's into Cockney. It's horrible, yeah. yeah. And then goes back into his, uh, his sort of fake American thing. And that bit's quite cool, isn't it? I like that. And even have it in a little flashback later on. So that's where you think, yeah, he's playing with us, isn't he? He's doing this on purpose. He's being bad on purpose, surely. Because we'd seen him, hadn't we? We'd seen him a couple of years earlier in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, where personally, I mean, I love that film. And personally, I, I think he's great in that. Yeah, he's very good in that film, yeah. 
so we know we can act. And the man who fell to earth and just about everything else, labyrinth included, you know. He's a good actor. I mean, he is, you know, people have criticised him, but personally, I think he's it, he's always going to be a little bit affected. I mean, but in absolute beginners, he's, he's, he's playing a kind of, like a stock character, isn't he? He's playing some a part that, aside from the musical bits, would be probably be played by a much straighter actor. Yeah, he asked, didn't he? He asked specifically to play that part. Yeah, he required because I think Julian Temple approached him to make some music for the film, and he asked to be in it, and he and that's the part yeah. that he chose personally. Although I think Stephen Burkoff was amazing in that part mm. as the fanatic, they call him, don't they? Yeah, the uh, the Mosley character. I think Bowie could have done quite a good job at that as well. I wonder, though, if there's a reason behind that. Because he was accused, wasn't he, of having sort of Nazi tendencies a few years prior to that, do you remember? Bowie was. Yeah. Was he doing sort of like Nazi salutes from the back of a car or something? Was it during his drug period? He did something that I was believe so. out of order. Yeah. yeah, I think he was a bit spaced out and didn't quite know what he was doing, but sort of lived to regret it for quite a long time, I think. So yeah. I wonder if, you know, he didn't want to go down that path again, yeah, maybe. possibly. You know? The Diamond Dogs tour, mm. I can't remember who designed that tour, but he based it on Nuremberg rallies. Right. Uh, these, you know, big banners and all, and, and sort of intimidating architecture, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So, yeah, maybe he's touched on the Nazi thing too, yeah. too frequently. A little too much. Not, mm. not that anybody seriously believes that David Bowie was a racist, but uh, no, maybe he was. No. Maybe that part just appealed to him. Vendi's partners. Do you know much about how the film came into being? From what I can gather, there's not a great deal spoken about the, the genesis of it as such. It's more about the, kind of the production, the post-production. Um, from what I can gather, he, you know, I think the, the main basis of it, he wanted to do a version of the book and gave a lot of pre-publicity as to what that was going to be like with a few kind of mistruths, I think. He was presenting information to like the Face magazine at the time and NME really bigging it up as being something much much more than it actually ended up being to try and generate as much publicity before the film was even made so he's kind of setting himself up for a fail really I think yeah not being completely honest with with, with the uh, the public so I, I think you know in, in terms of the genesis of it I don't think anybody really knew what to expect I think it was only when it came out and it, and it flopped immediately didn't it that was the it thing was immediate, it was yeah the opening night it but it bombed I remember the tube did a um I mean, sort of avidly watching the tube around that time. And they did a show where they dressed the studio up like Soho. That's right, yeah. And it was very kind of absolute beginners themed, yeah. which raised a lot of, I guess, a lot of excitement. But you see, you had something like The Tube, which was, you know, God, incredibly cool, you know? Yeah. But then the film didn't even really match the feel of The Tube, you know? Some of the uh, the actors in it are so kind of from the old guard, aren't they? You've got people like Alan Freeman and Lionel Blair and people like that. You think this is meant to be a really cool youth film. And you've got these kind of creaky old actors in, you know, creaky old sort of TV personalities. I think they could have been quite good had the rest of the film around them being been stronger and they could have been like sort of cheesy interludes, you know. Yes. Lionel Blair actually features quite heavily, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got quite a significant character, hasn't he? And in fairness, and he actually plays it quite well, in fairness, doesn't he? Yeah, I think he's quite good, isn't he? Yeah. I think it, it just falls down so badly. I think fundamentally, the biggest problem is this poor guy. Eddie O'Connell, who plays Colin. I say poor guy because he wasn't good enough to carry it, the lead of a film like that, a big film like that. He's inexperienced and that shows and I don't think it was fair of them to give him that part. Yeah. What a damaging experience for a young guy like that to, to be so oh, yeah. badly slated, you know. It was his first film. It's a massive yeah. production. 
I mean, who who gave him the job? I mean, did Julian Temple sign off on that? He must have done. Not sure. Don't know how he got chosen. It's more obvious why they chose Patsy Kensit, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of up and coming star, wasn't she? And she's not great in it. She's not great. I like the bit with I like the song. I like having it all, mm. which is quite interesting because that was originally written by Elvis Costello. Apparently, he wrote a song and they d- they didn't quite like it, so they wrote somebody else. It was it Winston Lang and Winstanley, I think they wrote in to rewrite it. Okay, so I think Elvis Costello had his nose put out of it. I think he even sang a little bit of it, his his version of it, and it was quite similar. The other potentially quite cool connection to the film is Paul yeah. Weller, and Paul Weller is a big fan of the book. Yes, and they did a song, didn't they, called Absolute Beginners. Was it, Indeed. was it him? Yeah, or, the jam, yeah. Was it the jam? He wasn't Star Yeah, yeah. And then they do a, a reversioned, they change the lyrics to a Star Council song and have Eddie O'Connell mime to it on the Banks Which of is the Thames. A, a, a terrible idea. Terrible. <laughs> terrible idea, yeah. I mean, it's, it's for me, that's probably the worst bit in the film. I'm a big Paul Weller fan, I have to say. I absolutely love him. And strangely, I was interviewing his sister. I was interviewing Paul Weller's sister quite a few years ago when they had the big uh, jam exhibition in, in Liverpool. And I confessed to her that I was a big Style Council fan, much more than a jam fan, which is quite a thing to admit to. And she she kind of half agreed. She said that from her side of the table, they had a whale of a time. The Style Council was a lot of fun, you know, the... They got to go to lots of exotic locations to shoot music videos and had lots of fun, you know, and camped it up a lot. Yeah, so the jam was on sort of council estates in outer London, wasn't it? And uh... Oh, God, yeah. It's such a difference. I mean, it is much more of a style council film than a jam film, absolutely. Definitely. Beginners. The coffee bars and the, the jazz and the, uh, I suppose, just the whole kind of Soho being very cool and the fashions. But then the collaboration between the style council and the film is dreadful. It's terrible, yeah. It's so badly judged having him miming to that song in that. Begs the question why, doesn't it? Even though Julian Temple was bigging the film up, he had already been removed from the film, hadn't he, at some point in production? What was yeah, that about? they wouldn't let him edit it, would they? I think he said there was three sets, or there was a team, and they'd split the film into three chunks, so they had different people working on the beginning, the middle, and the end of the film. And allegedly, which is really, I suppose, the shocking thing, is they chopped up the opening, you know, the continuous shot, which, like you said before, is probably the best thing about the film. Apparently, they chopped it all up and edited it. Right, yeah, that would have been And fortunately, he was, he was able to go back in and stick it back together again, you know, present it as it was meant to be. Why was he removed? He just really, really annoyed <laughs> Goldcrest, apparently. And, you know, they, they saw that this was a an accident waiting to happen and wanted to try and salvage it, make it better, you know, make it a better film. From what I can gather, sort of reading interviews with him, is I think a lot of the film is still in the state that, you know, it was left once they tampered with it. But he, okay. I think he felt very, very sort of strongly about not messing up that opening sequence, you know. It must have been heartbreaking for him, wasn't it? You know, you can only imagine it's it's your baby, isn't it? It's your dream. And then yeah. I think they said to me he wasn't even allowed in the building. It's like, stay away. We're just going to fix it now. And that must be awful, I guess. In a way, when I got my generous hat on talking about the mm. film, it feels like a really brave, radical attempt to do something mm. exciting with the book mm. and make it extremely contemporary. But it, when I get less generous, but my, I've got another hat that says less generous on the front, <laughs> it feels like a sort of a coke fueled 80s nightmare, you know, a yeah. gaudy and hollow and just all surface. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with you, I have to say. And, uh, you know, I think when I wrote that article back in 2016, I think it was, I think I must have been going through a bit of a 
uh, I'm absolute beginner's phase. Because looking <laughs> back on it, like I mean, I've watched it a few times over the last few years. Because I, I, I got it on uh, Blu-ray, and it looks it looks amazing on Blu-ray. I yeah. have to say. It visually is stunning. Yeah, yeah, the colours are just. I mean, the colours are so vivid, and you know. But looking back today, I mean, yeah, well, I was spotting huge holes in it. Maybe because I'm sat watching it on a laptop very close up, you see the cracks a bit more. You know, mm. <laughs> I don't know, but there's. Um, I mean, it is a mess, but it's a kind of mess that I enjoy, I suppose. Often we say on this program. Lots of my guests are are into quite bad films, and I've got a very high tolerance for crappy films. Oh, same, yeah. And I've, I've watched some terrible films <laughs> for this program, <laughs> and what I find is I watch them two or three times in the week or couple of weeks leading up to doing the recording, and yeah. I build a bit of affection for it. And I I struggled with absolute beginners, and I think mm. it's partly because because it is from my era, it's from my Mm. youth this film mm. so i it's not historic historically interesting it's not it's not like i'm mm. looking at soho in the fifth like the real soho in the real 50s yeah it's just a bloated <laughs> you know i mean mm. the, it had a big budget yeah. didn't it and like just a, like yeah. that 80s excess that sort of thatcherite kind of loads of money kind it just has a has yeah, a, yeah. a touch of that to it it does on the other hand though yeah, I'm all about hearing your defence of it. I'm, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> it might be a very weak defence, I'm not sure. I remember being a, a teenager in the 80s, and we had three channels on the TV, and all of a sudden Channel 4 came along, and it was very, very different, and it felt like, even though a lot of the stuff that was on there was very boring, it was it, there was a sense of ownership. It was like, this is this is our channel. This Because you had stuff like Brookside and you know things like that that you could really embrace. And then obviously, you know, they went went into filmmaking and, you know, still, we've still got film four. was a real breath of fresh air in the 80s, you know, because obviously the Tory government had put a bit of a, you know, halt on British filmmaking in the 80s. So you kind of relied on people like Channel 4, Palace Pictures, which of course is absolute beginners, and like handmade films, those kind of companies, to breathe that new life into cinema, you know. Because otherwise you were stuck with Gandhi and Chariots of Fire and all those kind of flag-waving films. So to me, I think Absolute Beginners fits into that whole kind of zeitgeist, if you like, that kind of Channel 4, Palace Pictures, you know, that it was like something was happening and it felt like it was happening for us, yeah. you know, for teenagers or for, you know, young 20s or whatever. And it was a bit of a kick in the teeth of the, for the government to be making these films as well. So I don't know, maybe maybe that's the secret. Maybe that's why it kind of works for people from my age group now. And looking back, looking at it fresh, anybody watching it for the first time now would go, you know, what the hell's that? Yeah, yeah, you no, know, you it's, mean it's, it's, it, I guess it's even though it's set in the fifties, it's still a kind of zeitgeist film, you know. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean about that Channel Four thing, and I think the idea of giving it a go, trying something a little bit different. Yeah, if it had worked, it would have been. A remarkable film. Yeah. And it just felt like if they'd just... They've missed beats here and there. And yes. I think if they'd got better actors, maybe reined it back slightly. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. know what you mean about that. It was a period where you could try things. And I think it's... I do think it's a failure, but I think it's, I think it's a noble failure as well. I think it's... He gave it a go and it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that he did. It's you know, I'd, I'd rather it existed in a, the form that it's in than not exist at all. I guess. In your article, you say that the book has not been made into a proper film yet. No. And I mean, that would be a great film. You know, if, some, if somebody took Absolute Beginners and made a non-musical 
I don't know. How would you do it? I, I, mean, I imagine that, I imagine it in black and white for a start. I wonder if it would be more suited now. And I was, you know, in the last few years since that article was written, we've seen things like, there was, what, what was the um, the BBC drama with um, Hugh Grant, where he played, was it Lord Lucan? Oh, Jeremy Thorpe. Jeremy Thorpe, sorry, of course. Which was very atmospheric and, you know, similar era. And there was also, what, a year or so ago, there was the, uh, the other BBC drama about the Profumo affair, wasn't yeah. there? Which was done very well. BBC seem to be doing these kind of 50s and 60s period dramas incredibly well, don't they? So you wonder whether it would be better set as maybe a little three-part drama or something, you know? Yeah, possibly. I think one of the things he didn't quite get right was he was attempting to express that slight surreal... um, It's almost written in a kind of blank verse... Puts you slightly to one side of the of the drama, yeah. And none of the characters have actual names in the book. They're all called things like "Call yeah. Me Cobber" and "The Last Debutante from the Ball" and all these kind of weird names yes. that are like almost like sentences. Uh-huh. That's all difficult to reflect. And I think he was trying to express that in the film by by mm. making it slightly surreal. So I think if you if you did do a BBC drama like you say in that sort of Jeremy Thorpe Profumo style. Mm. You'd have to sort of rein it back in a little it bit. It would take a brave attempt, wouldn't it, to make it right, I think. Yeah. Because it's in, in fairness, you know, in fairness, it is very niche, isn't it? It's it's still something of a cult book, isn't it? It's not a, you know, it's not a recognised classic, is it? So, you no. know, it's always going to have a kind of niche audience and, and also probably an audience that are put off by the reputation of the film as well. Yeah. We keep talking about the film having bombed and been a critical disaster, etc. Yeah. But... Only in this country, as far as I can gather, it was quite popular yeah. in other parts of the world. Particularly, Martin Scorsese was a fan. Michael Apparently Jackson so. was a fan. I mean, what do you put that down to? I would very much put it down to the same reason why Benny Hill was massive in America. I think it's that British quirkiness, isn't it? Okay. I think we, you know, we're still we're still portrayed, aren't we? Very much still portrayed in in Hollywood as being quite eccentric. The British, aren't we? Yeah, the eccentric and also a sort of sophistication as well. Because I think it could be. I think you could see it's quite a sophisticated film. So I wonder if it's to do, like you say, it's to do with the portrayal of, or the perception of the UK abroad. Mm. Martin Scorsese is quite a worldly, you know, cine-literate guy, extremely, of course, and knows the UK well. He's a big fan of Michael Powell. Yes. It seems odd that he's such a big fan, but apparently, apparently he is, which I find... Very mm. strange. Is it British snobbery that we don't like it? I mean, maybe maybe we're the ones that are wrong. We, we, we as in the British public. I mean, are we just embarrassed of it, maybe, you know? Because there are, even for somebody who, you know, professes to be a, a fan of the film, you know, there's certain moments where you cringe, isn't there? Absolutely. Like the bit with the kid, you know, the baby boom, oh. the little kid who uh, Lionel Blair kind of takes under his wing. You know, when that song comes on the album, you know, you just want to kind of scratch it away, you know? It's yeah. awful. The worst bit for me in that respect is where Smiley Culture comes on at the end and does a little rap. You've just been watching these kind of race riots and all this kind of 1958 stuff, and all of a sudden it's the 80s. There's Smiley Culture and he's singing, yeah. and he references the film as well. He even references Absolute Beginners and breaking down the fourth wall. Look at us; we've been re- very radical with our filmmaking. It's and... exactly that, yeah. That's exactly where it is, isn't it? But it doesn't. It just doesn't, doesn't work. work, does it? No, so much of it is misjudged like that. I just want to finish off by I am going to quote you back a bit of your article now. Go on. It says the film stands as either a disaster, an above-average piece of entertainment, or a cult classic, depending on your perspective. Well, I'm going to qu- I'm going to quote somebody else now. Julian Temple read my article. Oh, did he? He cool. did. He actually said one-word response. 
both. Uh, was it a disaster or was it a success or whatever? And he came back with both. So that was quite nice. But you're not interviewing Julian Temple. So my answer would be pretty much what I said before. I'm glad it exists. I think it's something you can look at. You can see its faults. It's certainly not a perfect film. It's certainly not a perfect adaption of the book. But it's got worth, you know? For what for whatever reason, it's it's I think it's got worth. Maybe more than anything reflects the state of the film industry at the time at the British film industry at the time it was made. And it's a reaction perhaps to stuff like Chariots of Fire and Gandhi. And maybe also a reaction to the more kind of low budget, mega serious films of the era as well. If you'd like to read Dell's original article about Absolute Beginners, you'll find a link to it in the show notes for this episode, along with other bits and pieces about the film, including a short interview with Julian Temple, who talks about the catastrophic effect the film had on his life. He's okay now, though. Thanks to Del Pike for coming on the show, and thanks again to Aidan McManus, and thanks to you, the lovely listener, for putting those earbuds in your lug holes to listen to this load of old waffle. If you've enjoyed the programme, I'd be very grateful if you could leave a nice review and slash or star rating. It's very easy. All you have to do is go to ratethispodcast.com slash SohoBytes and follow the simple instructions. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. And please feel free to get in touch with the show with your comments and suggestions via Twitter. We're on at BytesSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And of course... All of these links, all the info about the guests, all the stuff and nonsense about every episode we've ever done, it's all on the show notes, which, as you know, is SohoBytesPodcast.com. SohoBytes is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. That's all from me. Until next time, bye for now. Bye for now.